Check, check. My understanding is that the only way into the family of God is through the, the wonderful process of adoption. It's the only way to, to become a, a member of the family of God is through adoption. Uh, adoption is not free, and adoption is not cheap. The average cost of adoption in the United States on the low end is around $20,000. On the high end can be as much as forty dollars to $45,000. It's expensive, and it's, in many cases, it's prohibitive for couples that would, would want to adopt but don't have the means to. But for those couples that, that God has provided the, me, the means, uh, they gladly pay that price for the privilege of bringing a child into their family to love that child and to raise that child as their own. The cost of adoption is not paid by the adoptee. I don't recall when I was adopted as a baby contributing a single cent to my adoption. The cost of adoption is not paid by the adoptee, it is paid by the adopter. And so I just said the only way into the family of God is through adoption, which means God is paying the price of our adoption. God has paid the price of our adoption. It's a cost that, that we are unable to pay. We don't have the means to pay the cost of our adoption. And so if God didn't pay it for us, we would not have a, a way into the family of God. That's actually a pretty unique thing that Christianity teaches, most of the other world religions teach just the opposite. They teach that it is up to the adoptee to earn their way into the family, but not Christianity. Christianity says, no, the expense rests with the adopter. It is God who, who purchases our ability to enter into the, the family. He's the adopter. We are the adoptee. And so we would ask, what is the price of our adoption? What's the cost of our adoption? Isaiah named it many thousands of years ago now. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and it's by his wounds that we are healed Jesus' death on the cross was the price of your adoption. We are in a series titled The Cost of Discipleship. The cost of our adoption was paid on our behalf. Our salvation is free of charge to us, but that does not mean that there is no cost to us. Now that we are members of the family of God, there is a cost, and the cost is called discipleship. Paul said it this way. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians and he said, you are not your own. You were purchased, you were bought with a price. We are not our own anymore, which means we are no longer at liberty to, to live just as we please. We're no longer at liberty to be the Lord and master of our own life. As the catechism says, we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life 
and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So the cost of discipleship is really summed up with Jesus. Two words that he often would, would invite people to follow him with, follow me. That, that's really what the cost of discipleship is about, is that in our daily life, we are charged to follow Jesus. And we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' letter to the church. It's Jesus' letter to all of us who aspire to follow him, and he's written this, he's delivered this sermon, which now we have recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, saying this is the way to walk, walk in it. And what we have seen so far as we've gone through the, the Sermon on the Mount is that this is radical. This is challenging. What we've seen is that there are two different kingdoms. There's the, the kingdom of this, this world, and there's the kingdom of heaven, and they operate on different principles and different values. And we are called not to be citizens of this kingdom, to live according to the ways of this kingdom. We are called to live according to the, the, the principles and values of the kingdom of heaven. And that's going to be difficult. It's going to stretch us. So one day, while surrounded by that great crowd of people, Jesus withdrew with a small group of disciples, and he began to teach them what it would mean to follow him. He began to share them the cost. And as we've been listening to the sermon, as I said, we have seen how radically countercultural it is. It stretches us way beyond the ways of this world, stretches us beyond the wisdom of this world, and it even stretches us beyond the ways of traditional religion. Traditional religion says, do not murder. It's good, we ought to not murder. But Jesus says, don't even call someone a fool. For if you do, you are in danger of the fire of hell. That's pretty stretching. Traditional religion says, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, don't even har harbor lustful thoughts. Traditional religion says, don't break your oath. But Jesus says, don't even be a person who has to make an oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Traditional religion says, an eye for an eye. You can get revenge, but make sure your revenge is commensurate with the... the crime that was committed to you, but Jesus says, no, you give up your right for revenge altogether. Now, I said I was going to skip this next portion of the sermon because it's really very similar to last week's passage, but I, I've reconsidered. I think it's too important and too easily dismissed by all of us to skip. This actually may be the part of the sermon where we need to linger the longest. Traditional religion says, love your neighbor. Jesus says, no, love your enemy. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Lord, we invite you once again to show us what we may not want to see. Tell us what we may not want to hear so that we might become all of who you call us to be as your sons. 
and as your daughters. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're reading from chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. About this passage, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, here for the first time in the Sermon on the Mount, we meet the word which sums up the whole of its message, the word love. You've heard it said, love your neighbors. So where do you suppose they would have heard it said, love your neighbors? Well, in their scriptures, right? They've heard this said many times in their, in their old, in what we call the Old Testament. For them, it was the only testament this was not a new command, love your neighbors. They had heard this preached and proclaimed and many times. Leviticus 19.18 says this, it says, do not seek revenge. It's even in the Old Testament. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among, among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love our neighbor is not a new command that Jesus introduced. God has always taught his people to love their neighbors. But Jesus was introducing something new. He was redefining the word neighbor. In the context of the Old Testament, the command to love their neighbor was understood as a command to love their fellow Israelite. Love your neighbor was heard as love your fellow tribe member. It was a, a partisan love. Love the one who is like you. Love the one who aligns with you ethnically, politically, religiously. Listen to the command again from Leviticus. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And the verse before that is even more explicit. It says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, love your fellow Israelite. That's, I mean, that's a hard enough command. Love your fellow tribe member. Don't hate your fellow Israelite. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where would they have heard it said, hate your enemy? Did they hear that in their old, in what we call the Old Testament? Was that something that was commanded in the law? Is there a passage buried somewhere in the Old Testament that says, hate your enemy? I haven't found it. 
certainly not explicitly. In fact, as you look through the Old Testament, there are glimmers of this command even to love your enemy in the Old Testament. In Proverbs 25, verse 21, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give them food to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. The Lord will reward you. Consider the book of Jonah. God sends Jonah to the enemy, to the, the Ninevites. Jonah doesn't want to go. Jonah doesn't understand how God could you love these Ninevites. And the whole book ends with this, with God rebuking Jonah. He says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are over 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left hand? Nowhere does God command his people to hate the enemy. But we know our history too well, and we know the stories in the Old Testament too well to not have some trouble with that statement. I mean, what about the, the command to go in and completely destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan? How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile the command, go in and kill everybody with this idea of love your enemy? Those two seem to be in conflict with one another. This is usually what we do to dismiss this command, love your enemy. You know, we usually go back to, well, you know, yes, love your enemy, but there was a time where God called Israel to kill the enemy. And so what we do in our mind is, is this, love your enemy unless they're like, you know, really your enemy. If they're really your enemy, then you don't have to love them, but, you know, love your enemy in, in the theoretical sense. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll admit this is a tough one for me too. I don't have a lot of wisdom on this, so I turn to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Remember who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He was a German pastor serving in Germany in a German church during World War II. So for him, the enemy was not theoretical. Like the enemy was on his doorstep. He had a very real enemy. And so he had to wrestle with this. What does it mean, love your enemy? And this is what he wrote. The wars of Israel, going into Canaan, killing all the people. The wars of Israel were the only holy wars in history. For they were the wars of God against the world of idols. It is not this enmity which Jesus condemns. For then he would have condemned the whole history of God's dealing with his people. On the contrary, he affirms the old covenant. He is as concerned as the Old Testament with the defeat of the enemy and the victory of the people of God. No, the real meaning of this saying, love your enemy, is that Jesus is again releasing his disciples from the political associations of the old Israel. From now on, there can be no more wars of faith. The only way to overcome our enemy is by loving him. Again, remember, this is written 
by someone who's not just talking about it theoretically, like I feel I am, but this is someone who's on the front line. The only way to overcome our enemy is by loving him. That's ridiculous, we say. It's absurd. That would never work. Maybe Matthew got it wrong. You know, like maybe Matthew was sitting there listening to Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount, maybe carefully taking notes, and a beautiful bird flew overhead. And he said, oh, beautiful bird. And he missed 20 seconds. And they came back, what did Jesus say? You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy. Was that it? Maybe Matthew got it wrong. I don't think so. Did Jesus ever once tell his followers to take up arms against their Roman oppressor? Can anyone remember that? I don't remember that. When the apostles took the gospel to the world into enemy territory, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, did they ever once come offering political solutions, military interventions to overthrow the enemy ever once? Do you remember that? I don't. What did they come with? They came with a radical gospel about a radical savior who invites us to live as citizens in a radical kingdom. And guess what? It worked. It worked. The Roman Empire that was persecuting Christians was one to Christ through the power of Christ's love and the church's love. The enemy was defeated by love. Do you know why Emperor Constantine declared the Roman Empire to suddenly be a Christian empire almost overnight? The, the legend is that there was a, a great battle and that he prayed to the Christian God and he had victory and so he decided to make Rome a Christian empire. I don't buy it. Why did Constantine make Rome a Christian empire? It's because he was a politician. It's because Rome was already becoming a Christian empire under his thumb and he couldn't do anything to stop it. It's because the church, dinner churches, this is why I love the dinner church so much, was spreading throughout the empire subversively, people getting together, rehearsing the teachings of Jesus, committing themselves to live the ways of Jesus. And it spread throughout the empire and the empire was becoming Christian. And so Constantine made a political maneuver. Let's sanction Christianity. Let's sanction the church so that we can control it. He sanctioned it so he could govern it. And surprise, surprise, he squashed all of the dinner churches. And he made church a, a state church over which the emperor had a whole lot of control. The same God of the Old Covenant is the same God of the New Covenant, but something changed with Jesus. 
Something decisively changed with Jesus uh, and his arrival to this earth. His arrival was the inauguration of a new kingdom. Jesus came ushering in a new kingdom, and as followers of Jesus Christ, that's the kingdom to which we are called to pledge our allegiance. That's the kingdom whose law we are obliged to follow. And the law of the kingdom of God is love. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Yes, they've heard that said. We've heard that said. There's nothing radical about that. Everybody's coming to that conclusion. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's the way the game is played in the kingdom of this earth. It's the way of this world. Love those who align with you, those who belong to your tribe. Love Bear fans, hate Packer fans. And then your daughter goes and marries a Packer fan and messes the whole thing up. <laughs> Needed to inject some humor into this. But Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you might be children of your Father in heaven. So through Christ, we have been adopted into God's family. And now Jesus is instructing us as family members about how we are to live. How does this family of God operate? It's not like every other family. The family of God is unique, distinct, from the vantage point of the world, even strange. We're called to be a little bit strange. In this family, we love our enemies, and we pray for those who persecute us. There's nobody else saying that. No one's saying that. You're going to find a lot of people saying, love your neighbor. Virtually every single religion teaches, love your neighbor, has in some aspect. The world values this neighborliness. You don't have to be a Christian to strive to love your your neighbor. You don't have to be a Christian to do good to those who do good to you. That's a life instruction that a lot of people are trying to follow. But for Jesus, it's not enough. It's not enough to love your neighbor when we only understand our neighbor as the one who belongs to our tribe, who aligns with us. Who is Jesus saying our neighbor is? He's redefi redefining it, and he's saying your neighbor is your enemy. It's a hard teaching. Your neighbor is your enemy. That's the one that you're called to love. Your enemy, by the way, is not the person that you despise. It's not the person that you have hostile feelings toward. Jesus doesn't even think that that's a, that's not even a consideration. We're called not to harbor hostility and anger. We're called to forgive. So your enemy is not the person that you despise. Your enemy is the person who despises you. Your enemy is the one who has hostile intentions towards you. There's nobody walking around today saying we should love our enemies. Nobody except Jesus. 
If you love those who love you, Jesus said, what reward will you, will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. According to Jesus, it is our love for our enemy that distinguishes us, that sets us apart from everyone else because nobody else is doing it. Nobody else except the Christians. That's what they did the first couple of hundred years, and the church exploded. It worked. We're the ones called to do it, and if we do, the world's going to have some questions. The world's going to have some questions. What is it about those Christians that don't return evil with evil, but good? What is it about those, those Christians who refuse to get revenge even when they're, they're treated terribly? What is it about those Christians who forgive over and over and over again? What is it about those Christians who return blessings for cursings? What is it about those Christians who are praying for the people who hate them and want to harm them? What is it, friends, about Christians? We know what it is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. End of sermon. Before we come to the table together this morning, I want to offer an apology to our church and to our community for some of the things that happened at the comedy event Wednesday night. I'm offering my apology because as the pastor of the church, I believe that I am the one responsible for what is said and how it is said from this platform. So understand this is just coming from me personally. I don't think that we represented the kingdom of God well Wednesday night. I don't think that we put our best foot forward as a church. I don't think the collection of churches put its best foot forward. There were a lot of moments I laughed. I mean, I have remembered that I'm a boy many times on the front rail of that bicycle. Uh, but there were moments I was embarrassed. There was a moment where I was ashamed. You need to know something about your pastor. Uh, your pastor has PTSD uh, from COVID, the wrecking ball that was COVID that our enemy used to divide the church. And Wednesday night brought back some of those anxieties for me. But the low point of the night came for me as I listened to the church applaud and amen at the expense of a guest who had chosen to leave. And I was sitting right where Pete and Ginger are sitting. And I saw her out in the gathering place deciding, should I leave, should I stay, while the church is applauding and amening. And I watched her walk down the stair steps. 
I thought, what in the world is going on? Now, I've apologized to her personally. By the grace of God, she's with us today. And in a few moments, we're going to partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ together. At the dinner church that night, we were encouraged to fix our minds on what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what's lovely, what's admirable, anything that's excellent, anything that's praiseworthy. Fix our minds on that. And then the show began with a beautiful prayer, encouraging us to love God and love our neighbor. But then as the show continued, what became evident to me was that neighbor meant those who share similar political convictions. When you come to a comedy show, you should expect some good-natured roasting. It's the nature of a comedy show. But at times, for me, I felt like it was a bit edgy and and maybe even mean-spirited. We have worked hard here at Crossview to cast a wide net to cast a wide net. We're trying to remove obstacles for people that are standing in the way of helping them, uh, standing in the way of them meeting Jesus. And so for me, in my estimation, my opinion, this was a step backwards Wednesday night. I want to be a pastor, and I want us to be a church that stands on the truth of God's word. And if God's word offends and causes people to leave, I don't like it, but I'm okay with it. And and we've had that. Jesus said things all the time that drove people away. I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with being uncharitable. To me, it just doesn't seem very Jesus-like. So again, I recognize this is my opinion, and I also think I'm probably in the minority, uh, and many people loved it, and I'm not trying to create more division, but I did feel compelled to, to offer my apology before we come to the table. The table is nonpartisan. It's a table, it's nonpartisan. The Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, who may come to the table? Listen to the answer. Those who are displeased with themselves for their sins, who nevertheless trust that these sins have been forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the passion and death of Christ, who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and make their life whole. So if you're a liberal who trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my invitation, God's invitation, is come. And if you're a conservative who trusts Jesus for your salvation, God's invitation is, is come. Whatever your tribe, if your hope and your trust is in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, come. Come to the one who adopted you who paid a great price to adopt you. Come to the one who has promised to love you, to sustain you, to forgive you, and one day who's going to usher you into eternity where there's going to be no more sin and no more sorrow 
and no more death. Come receive the gift of God for the people of God. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts.